He also has to rule on a very important question, which is whether the city councilors can be held personally liable for voting to remove the statues. And that's a big and very important issue that could affect local government all over the Commonwealth and maybe all over the country. Federal constitutional questions, such as the equal protection defense, which really goes in many ways to the heart of the conflict about what these statues mean and who gets to speak for the community. That raises important federal constitutional questions. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a legal blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out called How to Get Sued and a Christmas Story called The Sled. Well, before we introduce today's topics, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio. Clio's cloud-based practice management software makes it easy to manage your law firm from intake to invoice. You can try it for free at clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com. This past April in Charlottesville, Virginia, Circuit Judge Richard Moore ruled that the statutes of prominent Confederate figures Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson are considered war memorials and cannot be removed. Back in 2017, Charlottesville, Virginia was the site of a rally where white nationalists protested the removal, the proposed removal of the statute of Robert E. Lee. A clash between protesters and counter-protesters turned violent, resulting in the death of Heather Heyer, which sparked a national debate over these controversial statues. Some see these statues as symbols of racism and white supremacy, while others view them merely as a memorial to United States history. Well, today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to take a look at this recent ruling, the controversy over the removal of Confederate statues, and what's next in this likely extended legal fight. And here to do that today is Richard Schrager. He is the Pierre Bowen Professor at the University School of Law, where he has taught for almost 15 years. His scholarship focuses on the intersection of constitutional law and local government, federalism, urban policy, and constitutional economic status of cities. He also writes about law and religion. Welcome to the show, Rich. Oh, thanks for having me. And our next guest is Nestor Davidson, the Albert A. Walsh Chair in Real Estate, Land Use, and Property Law, and Faculty Director of the Urban Law Center at Fordham University School of Law. Professor Davidson is an expert in property, urban law, and affordable housing law and policy. Welcome to the show, Nestor. Glad to be here. Thank you so much. Well, Rich, since uh, you're the native, I'm going to throw the first question over to you. Uh, Can you give us a little bit of a background of Judge Moore's ruling and Parts of it have been decided, what remains to be decided, and kind of give us a background of what we're talking about today. Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, this is a litigation that began actually many years ago at this point when the city council, of uh, the Charlottesville City Council, voted to remove the Robert E. Lee statue that's in the middle of town here. Um, there's also, a, uh, as you had said, a Jackson, a Stonewall Jackson statue that also eventually they voted to remove. The city had never, never did actually remove the statues. Uh, there was a lawsuit initiated by some plaintiffs who were asserting that the city doesn't have the right to remove the statues under a state statute 
that authorizes the construction of war memorials and also bars their removal under certain uh, under certain circumstances. And so the plaintiffs brought this lawsuit. That lawsuit has been working its way through the courts. The judge, Judge Moore, uh, has made a number of rulings. The most recent ruling, which was just uh, about a week ago, uh, a week or two ago, the April 25th ruling, was a, a ruling that under the Virginia statute, the Lee statue and the Jackson statue are, are war memorials. And so the statute covers their erection and their removal. And so some took that a ruling to be the end of the case. But the judge has some other motions to decide and uh, that are still outstanding. One of those is whether the statutes, the existence of the statutes, violates the Equal Protection Clause of the U.S. Constitution, which is a defense that the city councilors have raised. So he still has to rule on that question. He also has to rule on a very important question, which is whether the city councilors can be held personally liable for voting to remove the statues. Um, and that's a big and very important issue that could affect local government all over the Commonwealth and maybe all over the country. Um, so both of these issues are still outstanding. The case is not over yet, so there are some issues uh, remaining. Well, Nestor, apart from the government ability to be able to withstand personal immunity in these issues, everybody seems to agree that this matter is going to get appealed and likely end up uh, at Virginia Supreme Court. When it gets there, what are the constitutional issues we're, we're framing? Well, as Rich uh, mentioned, there are important statutory issues. I think the equal protection question is an important one. And whether this ends at the Virginia Supreme Court or ultimately goes up to the U.S. Supreme Court will largely turn on whether this case is decided as a matter of Virginia law, both under the statute uh, and uh, questions of legislative immunity, which are typically decided as a question of state law. I think if the case is resolved in a way that rests on those Virginia grounds, uh, we'll see it end at the Virginia Supreme Court if it goes that far. And I tend to suspect that it will, given how Judge Moore has ruled. Um, I don't think the city is going to let that ruling stand, or at least they are going to, I assume, pursue an appeal. But federal constitutional questions, such as the Equal Protection Defense, which really goes in many ways to the heart of the conflict about what these statutes statutes mean and who gets to speak for the community, uh, that raises important federal constitutional questions. You know, Rich, there's been a, a long history of uh, victors defacing or removing statues uh, way back to Egyptian pharaohs, uh, tearing down obelisks of the pharaohs before them. Uh, how is this any different? Well, I guess your question is, how do we decide what kind of memorials and monuments do we put up uh, in the public square? And yes, you see the cycling of decisions to put up and take down monuments and other symbols of current regimes when there's regime change. We saw that in communist countries that uh, after the fall of communism, you see that 
after Hitler's rise and fall, the taking down of certain kinds of monuments. And I don't think we would be too surprised to see Germans taking down statues of Hitler after the end of the Third Reich. So um, I think these are complicated questions about whether statues uh, should be erected or shouldn't and when they can be taken down and when they can't. The question here is actually who gets to decide. Remember, these Confederate monuments were put up by uh, basically a whites-only society in Charlottesville. That is, uh, under Jim Crow laws and voting restrictions, African Americans were restricted from uh, participating in the political process. The Lee statue was erected in a whites-only park uh, after parades by the Ku Klux Klan, um, and they were explicitly erected in the early part of the 20th century to send a message to African-Americans, local African-Americans, that they were second-class citizens. Uh, the history is pretty clear about that, and so the question for the court and for the public in general, is it okay for the victors, in this case the victors were the whites in the South who had passed Jim Crow laws, segregation laws, is it all right for them to wreck their monuments and for those never to be taken down um, when those monuments don't reflect the, the wishes or the choices of the, of the current community. Remember, in this case, the city of Charlottesville had a blue ribbon commission that looked at this issue for over a year and had decided to contextualize the monuments at first. Um, and then there was a decision to move them, not to destroy them or anything, but just to move them out of the center of town. Uh, that generated the what we saw in August of 2017, which was the violent reaction of neo-Nazis and the murder of Heather Heyer uh, by one of those neo-Nazis. So the violence came to Charlottesville when the community of Charlottesville had already decided to say something different in their public spaces, which I think uh, is appropriate. Nestor, how do we go about defining the victors here? And, and how does this Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment interplay with state law? On the other hand, there were two sides in the Civil War, and one side was a victor and one side was not. But within Virginia, it's a different perspective. Well, I think Rich really put his finger on the most important question here, which is who gets to say what messages dominate the public square in any community. And Charlottesville undertook a process, a democratic process of discernment to decide how it felt about the messages that these two statues sent. And what you have here is a dynamic that we're seeing really all over the country where a local democracy, a local community wants to express its view and you have a state that has a different view. Uh, and, you know, the equal protection question in this case is an important one. It raises uh, questions about the meaning of our public space. But behind all of that is really whether or not the state of Virginia gets to say to Charlottesville, these are messages that you must carry, even if you and your community and the people who live there don't agree. Uh, and I think that's a principle that's uh, playing out in conflicts between states and local governments all over the country, uh, whether it's in the context of sanctuary cities, whether it's in the context of environmental protection, in the context of local uh, workplace rules. States across the country are increasingly telling local governments, we speak for you, we speak for your community. And I think uh, it's a particularly sharp message in the context of this fight over these monuments. 
but it's only a piece of what we're seeing across the country. Well, Rich, we're looking at two relatively simple uh, town square statues, gentlemen on horses. Stone Mountain in Georgia presents a whole different question, doesn't it? So, you know, I think there are lots of monuments all over the country, especially in the South, often constructed in the beginning of the 20th century as a kind of uh, adjunct to, to the Jim Crow system and, the, and celebrating the lost cause narrative. And then in the 1950s and 60s, often in response to the civil rights uh, struggle. They send certain kinds of messages, and Stone Mountain is one of those uh, that that also uh, memorializes certain Confederate heroes. Again, uh, I go back to what Nestor said, which is the decisions uh, of uh, a local community to memorialize or not to memorialize certain kinds of aspects of the history, I think, should be, in general, respected. Um, and in this case, we have a state statute that gives the local authorities, the authorizes them to erect monuments to lots of different wars, but then withholds the ability to remove those monuments. It's not clear why the state should have a central say in that respect. There's also a question just to remind uh, your listeners about the application of this statute at all. It's not clear that this particular statute in Virginia applies to cities, uh, and the monuments that were erected before 1997, under the explicit language of the statute, uh, it didn't apply to cities uh, before 1997, and these statues were built in the in the 1920s. So I think uh, it's quite possible that the Virginia Supreme Court will reverse the trial court and just say that the statute doesn't apply. It's also possible for the General Assembly to pass a new law that says localities can decide uh, whether or not to erect and keep their monuments or whether they they want to move them or remove them entirely. What are the elements of equal protection that come into play here? I mean, would it be sufficient in, as a remedy to erect a monument that is uh, reflective of the, of the other part of the community side by side with these other monuments in the public square? What do we look at? Well, I think if you have a community that believes that the central message that they are being forced to communicate is uh, one of segregation, one of a cause uh, uh, in support of slavery, it seems to me that equal protection is not served if the answer to that is to merely provide the other side of the story. I think This is a community that feels very strongly that these statues send messages that are are not uh, welcome, that certainly could be contextualized. I think that would be appropriate. Uh, But here you have a state that if they prevail, if the city loses this litigation, uh, the state will be forcing this community to carry messages in uh, and around African-American neighborhoods, as Rich mentioned, that really come from an era of Jim Crow uh, that send a message of racial discrimination. And I, I don't see necessarily how adding additional messages temper that core communication. Well, gentlemen, before we move on to our next segment, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Imagine what you could do with an extra eight hours per week. 
That's how much time legal professionals save with Clio, the world's leading practice management software. With intuitive time tracking, billing, and matter management, Clio streamlines everything you do to run your practice from intake to invoice. Try Clio for free and get a 10% discount for your first six months when you sign up at their website, clio.com, that's C-L-I-O.com, with the code L2L10, that's L2L, the number 10. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams. We are joined by Rich Schrager, professor of law at the University of Virginia School of Law, and Nestor Davidson, faculty director of the Urban Law Center at Fordham University's School of Law. We've been discussing the April 25th court ruling on Charlottesville's Confederate statutes, and we've been discussing and talking about the application of equal protection to the type of situation that we have here. Rich, what is the resolution? I mean, what what is the appropriate constitutional equal protection uh, aspect that we're looking at? How do we resolve it? Do we remove these statues and eliminate it? Well, I, you know, I think that I've stated elsewhere that I think there is an equal protection problem when uh, governments act with the purpose and intent of expressing racial subordination. And the history of these monuments does reflect quite a bit of that. I'm more interested in, again, the who decides question. And I think that's importantly, as Nestor has said, and as I've repeated, I think that's importantly a decision that local communities should be able to make. So, I, you know, I oppose these statutes that restrict local authority to make decisions about what kinds of expression they want to engage in. I think ultimately, um, it doesn't make a lot of sense to force local communities to engage in expression that they don't want to engage in. I think in this case, the statutory arguments are, are pretty powerful as to why the statute as a technical matter just doesn't apply to the city. That's a pretty easy way for the Virginia Supreme Court to avoid the constitutional issues, which I think they would want to do in any case. And uh, just ruling that the localities have authority to do this. The other easy way out of this is for states to give latitude to localities or simply to say, um, it's okay to to move these statues and put them in a historical context in which they aren't at the center of town and representative of a certain kind of dominance by a certain kind of segment of the community. A lot of these statues are located in majority black cities, like in Richmond, Virginia, for example, uh, or in Birmingham, Alabama, and it seems or New Orleans also. And uh, Mitch Landro, I think the the former mayor was was correct in in saying that that these don't represent who we are. Would I want to see the statues destroyed? No, I think they could be placed again in a historical setting in which they're understood as not to represent a statement about racial superiority. Well, Nestor, the statute itself says that the cities and so forth can erect monuments to war veterans. Does that statute provide an out to allow the erection of of these statues because uh, these two generals are war veterans? Well, the question is not whether or not there's authorization to erect monuments. I don't think that's really much in dispute. The real question here, and, and I agree with Rich, that, you know, the courts, as this moves its way up, are likely to try to rely on statutory grounds if there are clear statutory grounds to recognize the interests of the local community. The issue isn't directing the statutes. The issue is whether or not, if these are statutes that are placed in prominent places in a community, 
that send a certain message that whether the state should decide that the community can't really do anything about that. And certainly if, you know, if Charlottesville wants to uh, honor veterans, they are well within their rights to do that. But that's not really the issue here. The issue here, uh, as the community sees it, is one about racial supremacy and violence and how to place that history and that message in the right context and the center of the city square, metaphorically speaking, uh, Charlottesville does not believe is the right place for that message. Well, Rich, even the parks themselves are an issue. The parks were racially segregated at the time that they were donated. Does that play a, any part of the situation? I mean, should these things even be a park at this point, given their history? Well, I th- certainly that's right. I mean, the, the, again, the history of these statues are, are, as you say, they were donated as part of a larger donation to create a park which was named after Robert E. Lee. It's a whites-only park. More importantly is to create the park, they had to tear down and destroy an African-American community. So there was displacement of existing African-American residents at the time. And there's been a history of displacement of African-American residents in Charlottesville to make room for whites-only spaces. And that is a history that we have had to struggle with and face directly. And the city has tried to face that directly in part by saying, well, what is the meaning of this space, this park in the middle of town that used to have African-American homes adjacent to it and on it and, and a statue that is celebrating someone who was resisting the abolition of slavery. That's a tough conversation to have with lots of people to remember that our history is um, is one that is not very positive. Um, so I think that is an issue. The context in which these statues were erected is quite an important issue that the judge has to consider when he, uh, he's considering the equal protection defense. It'll be something that the Supreme Court of Virginia should consider when it's considering the equal protection defense on appeal. That context uh, gives a sense of why these statues were erected and where they were and what that effect was on the African-American community, both at the time and currently, what message it sends to the African-American community in Charlottesville today. Now, sir, as we look at this and we see potentially that the Virginia Supreme Court could tee this up on a constitutional basis, beyond the question of equal protection, is federalism going to play a role? I'm not sure that federalism per se is really going to be that much of an issue. There are important questions of the structure of state and local governance. You know, Virginia is a state that as a matter of background law tends to favor the state. There's a regime called Dillon's Rule, which for local government people just means that local authority has to be legislatively granted by the state as opposed to some states where local governments have more state constitutional protection. But again, I think that the case will turn primarily on a question of the interpretation of the Virginia statute and then, if necessary, these uh, really important equal protection grounds. I do want to remind your listeners that there's another issue to come in the case which is about whether or not the individual city council members can be held liable for essentially doing their job as local legislators. And I think that question of immunity is going to be an important one as well. 
Is that really a question? I mean, doesn't it seem appropriate that when you are acting on behalf of a governmental entity that you are entitled to the protection of the crown, essentially? I would certainly think so. What we're seeing uh, in this case, and unfortunately what we're seeing in a number of states, in Florida, in Texas, in several states, where you have policy conflicts between the state and local governments, and states are deciding that it's not simply enough to assert preemption, which means that they take the local authority away. But it is now becoming much more common for states to actually go after local officials to have provisions in state law that allow for the removal of local officials or that expose local officials to individual liability. And that is a really troubling trend. Uh, And that's something that I think whatever you think of the merits of any individual conflict, uh, even whether you think it's an issue that should be resolved at a state level uh, for interests of uniformity or for other important state interests, or this is something that should be resolved at the local level in response to community needs and preferences, I think everyone should be able to agree that punishing local officials for the exercise of local democracy should be beyond the pale. It would seem so. Well, gentlemen, it looks like we've reached the end of our program. I'd like to take this opportunity to share your final thoughts. So first, we'll turn it over to Rich. Well, thanks, Craig. It's nice to talk about this. This is a, uh, I would just say, this has been a complicated and long-running litigation and also an emotional one for, for folks in Charlottesville and for the community. And I would reiterate what Nestor just said. The two remaining issues that I think are quite important are, one, do you hold individual city councilors liable for votes they take? Remember, those statues were never removed. They just had the city council voting to remove them. Um, and second, whether local officials should be constrained in, in when they are trying to comply with, uh, in their in their case, and this is their main their equal protection defense when they're trying to comply with the constitutional principle to treat everyone equally and not express messages of of racial inferiority to some subset of their community. And that's a a hard issue and one that, um, you know, I think when the Virginia Supreme Court looks at it, we'll, we'll take quite seriously. Great. Thank you. And we'd like to share your contact information if you'd like. So I'm at Schrager at Virginia.edu. Great. Thank you. And Nestor, your final thoughts and your contact information. Certainly. And again, thank you for addressing one of the more important questions I think local governments are facing today. And as Rich said, it's a difficult set of questions. And I think we have to take a step back and really ask who is best positioned to answer these very, very difficult trade-offs. And I think At the end of the day, for a question like this, I think this is a great example of where communities should be able to speak and should be able to have a process for working through within their own confines the messages that they want to hold central to their community. I hope the courts share that view as it moves forward, and uh, I'll be watching closely as well. I can be reached at ndavidson at law.fordham.edu. And again, it's been great to join you for this. Great. Thank you very much. Well, it looks like we brings us to the end of our show. If you'd like what you've heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com, where you can leave a comment on today's show and sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. And join us next time for another great legal topic. 
When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi for their next podcast covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.